Blog Talk Radio. Brutal Native American group on the American frontier, the Comanche. 
ultimately is going to be captured in 1855, and that is our focus. But he does survive to escape in 1858, and will later write a book titled Three Years Among the Comanches, where he does tell the whole story. Back in the 1850s, Native Americans were still raiding border settlements, especially those in the Great Plains region, from modern-day Kansas, south to western Texas, and New Mexico. In 1855, when our story begins, Lee is in his late 40s. Throughout his life, he's an adventurous man. He's even going to join the Navy when he's pretty young, but that's not going to help him at all during this story as it takes place on land. Later, though, he will join the Texas Rangers and even fight into the Mexican War until it ends in 1847. After the war, Lee is going to retire to some degree, but he is going to stay in Texas in order to catch wild horses and trade cattle and do things like that around a town called Corpus Christi in the south. New there is where Lee is going to be captured by the Comanche. The Comanche were a nomadic horse people. They lived in the southeast and along the Great Plains. Their history, prior to horses, was rather unimpressive. They were often pushed around by the other stronger native groups. In tradition, they had very little in the way of culture and myths. Aside from a reverence for the Great Spirit, they had hardly religion and no shaman or holy men. As nomads, they didn't make permanent housing and had very little need for fine art. What made the Comanche special was the horse. Horses were introduced to the Americas as part of the Spanish invasions of Mexico in the 1500s. By the 1600s, horses had made their way to modern-day Texas and were adopted first by native groups like the Apache. The Apache were a powerhouse in the region, but as a semi-agricultural group, never truly adopted the horse like the Comanche. Horses offered nomads like the Comanche's advantages, most notably war over massive distances, being able to cover hundreds of miles in a matter of days. By the 1800s, they were the most dominant Native American power in the Southwest and had the edge of a group in power that remembers what it's like to be kicked around. They would often steal horses and raid travelers, even in the dead of night. Lee and his friend William Akins want to drive a herd of mules from East Texas from where they lived near Corpus Christi to a town in California that Lee calls Matamoros. And I've looked at a lot of old maps and I can't find it. There is a spot in Baja, California where they might be going, but it doesn't really matter because when they travel west from Corpus Christi, they're not going to make it past El Paso. The trip is going to go right through Comanche country, but Akins is convinced that they can do so safely and make a bunch of profit. They will not, and Akins probably has no real good reason to believe that, being as how maps from the time literally label this area as the range of the Comanches. Regardless, they hire a bunch of men and they load up on horses. They drive their mules west toward Matamoros, wherever that is, with their mules, and they want to pick up more along the way. The men are pretty well supplied. Lee even stops off and picks up this fancy new pocket watch that can be set in order to actually go off like an alarm. He does this because he wants the caravan to be regimented. Every day he's going to set that thing for 3.30 a.m. He's going to wake up and he's going to get everything moving on time. The group starts their drive in early March in 1855. They're moving west slowly along the Rio Grande. There's grass there, and apparently that's important to mules. And just into April, they stop a little bit southwest of El Paso, where they want to rest the mules for a few weeks. In order to stay safe, each night the camp uses sentinels to keep a lookout for danger. On April 2nd, Lee gets off the patrol around 1 a.m. He sets his alarm, and he goes to sleep. Screams echo through the camp. It's pitch black. In dim campfire light, Lee can make out dark figures moving throughout the camp. They are painted Comanche. It's a raid, and the Sentinels have offered no warning. Lee grabs his gun, but is lassoed as soon as he rises. He's tackled to the ground and held there by a team of Comanche. His legs and hands are tied. 
The scene is chaos, shouting and whooping as the Comanches go tent to tent with tomahawks. Four settlers survive the raid. Nelson Lee and William Akins, who we know, but two other hired hands, Thomas Martin and John Stewart. The survivors are stripped of their clothes and dressed in Comanche garb, buckskin leggings and a hunting shirt. It's almost 3.30 a.m. now. As the raiding party is rummaging through Lee's things, they discover his pocket watch. As they are inspecting it, it goes off. They've never seen anything like it. They give it back to Lee so he can make the watch do it again. Lee writes, quote, the idea at once flashed upon my mind that I might make it serve a useful purpose. They untied my hands and I accepted the watch with an air of reverence and adoration. I wound it up solemnly and so regulated it that in a few minutes it went off again. Again, the dusty crowd was struck with wonder and astonishment, end quote. Lee believed at this point that the Comanche felt that there was something supernatural about the watch, that the Comanche felt it was connected with the Great Spirit. The Comanche plundered the resources from the camp and loaded what they could on the mules. Daylight begins to break by the time they are done, and for the first time Lee can see what the Comanche have done to the rest of his party. He writes, quote, The scene was cold and heart-rending. They had cut and hacked the poor, cold bodies in the most brutal manner. Some had their arms and hands chopped off. Others were disemboweled. And still, others had their tongues drawn out and sharp sticks thrust through them. All the dead were scalped, and the scalps, still fresh, were dangling from the savages' belts, end quote. As Lee and the other captured are let out of camp, the Comanche point out the bodies of the sentinels, who might as well have not been on duty at all. For settlers, there is something about the Comanche that is rightly horrifying. The trip that follows is a good example. To terrorize the captured men, the Cherokee routinely fainted them with the tomahawks still bloody from the night before. This indestructible $99 drone is now available in the U.S. This powerful 99 will grab at their hair, knife in hand, and make a motion as if they're going to scalp them. But then they don't. To travel, the Comanche will cover the men's face with deer skins, and they'll poke a small hole near the mouth so they can breathe a little bit. They'll mount them on a mule. Their hands tied behind them, and their legs straddling the mule, but their ankles also tied. If you fell off, you roll with your ankles now on the horse's back, and your body dangling by its feet. Lee had no control of his mule. Blindfolded, they sometimes hit low branches and fell off. The mule would stop and the Comanche would run over and put him right side up again. The Comanche seemingly found this very amusing. Lee writes, quote, My somersaults afforded the Indians most excellent sport, and every performance was treated with tremendous applause. Indeed, I could sometimes tell from the laughter that would begin to arise that danger was near. End quote. At night, the band would stop moving. The captured are fed, but in a very Comanche way. Hunks of horse flesh are taken directly from a boiling pot and hurled at them with sticks, causing burns. The Comanche seem to enjoy the squirming this causes in the captives. For sleeping, the Comanche set up an arrangement you might expect. Lee writes, quote, First, we were made to lie down on our backs with arms and feet extended. Four stakes were then firmly driven through the sword, to which our hands and feet were fastened as wide apart as possible. Then two stakes were driven close on either side of the neck, and a strong strip of buffalo hide tied from one end to the other, so that it would be passed under the chin across the throat. Thus we lay upon our back, unable to move, head, hand, or foot. End quote. The captives, not surprisingly, didn't sleep that much. And these conditions lasted for four more days. They would sleep in the bizarre straitjacket, be blindfolded and tied to a mule, 
and then be forced to play a game of dodge the boiling horse meat. On the fourth day of travel, they arrive at a massive Comanche village. Lee claims there were hundreds of tents and as many as 500 Comanche, but that's probably an exaggeration. The group is forced to walk past the chief. His name is Big Wolf, which is actually a pretty cool name, especially in comparison to some of the other Comanche names from the stories. Lee is personally taken to go see Big Wolf. He's heard about the watch, and he wants to see it in action. Lee is asked to make the watch ring, but he refuses, saying that to do now would be dangerous, which is a risky and disappointing thing to say to a bunch of people with tomahawks. But Lee plays it off pretty well. He points to the heavens and says, to do so now would wreck the world. The chief is disappointed, and I would probably guess a little bit skeptical, but he doesn't push it. Lee is then taken about a quarter of a mile outside the village, where many Comanche warriors are assembled. He finds his fellow captives, Aikens, Martin, and Stewart, are already there. All three are naked and tied to high posts in the ground. Their hands are drawn up in the air with rope. Martin and Stewart are side by side. Facing them, about ten feet away, is Aikens. Tied in the same manner to the other posts, Lee is stripped and forced to join Aikens, tied in the front of Martin and Stewart. Then, the ceremony began. Big Wolf is stationed to watch as a line of warriors in a choreographed line walk in, a tomahawk or knife in one hand and a flint spearhead in the other. As the procession circled Martin and Stewart, two Comanche broke from the line and with their knives scalped them. The area taken is small, compared by Lee to a silk dollar. They are alive but bleeding profusely. The troop passed by Aikens and Lee, but left them unharmed. The Comanche let out a war whoop, and in the line, passed by Martin and Stewart again, this time brandishing their knives and tomahawks, and one by one, raking their flint spearheads across their victims' bodies, leaving them a mess of long wounds and blood. They passed Aikens and Lee again, but again leave them unharmed. The cycle continued. Lee writes, quote, How many times they circled round, halting to sound the war whoop, and going through the same demonic exercise, I cannot tell. They persisted in the hellish work until every inch of the bodies of the unhappy men was hacked and covered with clotted blood. End quote. Lee expressed that he would give anything during those hours of his life to have been able to choose his own form of death rather than face the torment of the Comanche. S.C. Gwynn, in Empire of the Summer Moon, writes of the Comanche, quote, Not only did they inflict horrific suffering, but by all evidence they enjoyed it. Making people scream in pain was fun for them. It was an important part of their adult culture, and one they accepted without challenge. End quote. There was an intermission to the ceremony. The Comanche sat on the ground, smoked tobacco, and laughed at the prisoners, pointing out the damage done and mocking Martin to praying. Stewart remained silent. When the ceremony resumed, the Comanche did a war dance, two of them moving around the circle. Lee looking on says of the Comanche, quote, Finally, they reached the victims. Danced before them for some time, then drew their hatchets suddenly and sent the bright blades crashing through their skulls. Their bodies were taken down and rudely thrown aside upon the ground. End quote. Lee and Aikens, still naked and bound, believed they were next to supper, but nothing happened. The ceremony was over, and they were left unharmed. They were unbound, dressed, and taken back to camp. Lee was haunted by the memory of that night, and from that point forward, he's going to relentlessly hate the Comanche. You can kidnap him, blindfold him, and tie him to a horse, but torturing his friends in front of him, that crosses the line. In an attempt to avoid torture himself, Lee even tries to effectively commit suicide. One day he attacks the Comanche, but they respond by just kind of wrestling him and laughing at him. 
Both Lee and Akins are going to be brought back to the camp, but they're going to be separated for weeks. Eventually, the two do meet up again, and they're going to be allowed to converse for a short period of time. Akins was being sent to another camp, and this is basically their opportunity to say goodbye. But Akins does provide Lee with some parting advice. He told Lee that if he cooperated, he might live. He said that the watch was going to be the key to his escape. They would keep him alive because it had an effect on the chiefs and the warriors. Akins told Lee, quote, they believed it to be a living spirit in a silver body, end quote. After an hour or so, Akins is going to be taken by the Comanche, and Lee is never going to see or hear from him again. He is actually presumed dead, as this story takes place in the 1850s. Nelson Lee will continue to live with the Comanche for three years after his initial capture. The years blend together to a certain degree. He's going to be bought and sold several times, living with three different Comanche tribes, and his watch is going to be held in reverence by each tribe and everywhere it goes. But he does never stop plotting his escape. Lee also followed Aiken's advice. He made himself useful to the Comanche. He became sort of a servant for Big Wolf and the other masters who bought him. He did whatever they needed him to do. After a while, he gained their trust. They began to leave him unbound and at one point even allowed him to walk around camp with a knife. Big Wolf's tribe actually nicknamed him Chimacacho, which apparently means the good white man. I would be offended, but I have read a lot of history. There were hiccups from here. He did have one particularly cruel master, Spotted Leopard. With a knife, he severed the muscle below his knee following a failed escape attempt. But other sections of his life went pretty well. He will marry a comely squaw named Sleek Otter after rejecting others for being, quote, hideous or fat and flabby, which is rude because he is commonly saved by the squaws in the story from the warriors who are beating him. Eventually, Lee will be able to make his escape. While alone on a journey with his third chief, Roland Thunder, which is, ironically, to meet other tribes about dangerous whites intruding on Comanche territory, Lee sees an opportunity. Quote, Snatching the hatchet in that instant from its place, I leapt towards the chief and buried the dull edge of a broad hand's breath in his brain. End quote. ATF National Tracing Center. Now, you've probably never seen this form right here. A broad hand's breath into his brain. That'll work. Lee continues, quote, A moment sufficed to draw the rifle from beneath him and jerk the long knife from his girdle. Then, mounting his horse, I dashed wildly away over an unknown path toward the land of freedom. End quote. He traveled southwest, looking to find the Mexican state of Chihuahuas. He constantly had a double back due to geographic obstacles like cliffs and mountains or signs of Indians in the area. He would use the sun to travel in the day and the North Star to help him navigate at night. But after weeks in the wilderness, Lee began to struggle with his health. He writes, quote, I was sick in body as well as soul. My limbs had become swollen, and the wounds and bruises that covered me were inflamed and painful. Day by day, I grew weaker as I advanced. Often I prayed God that when I fell asleep, I might never wake up again. End quote. After about a month, Lee's horse becomes too weak, and he's forced to abandon him when he's unable to move on. Lee writes, quote, Now for the first time my heart died within me. For all I could discover, civilization was as far off as when I started the journey. I began to doubt myself, to fear that I'd become crazed, end quote. But he soldiered on. Alone in the wilderness, forced to avoid Comanche, encountering rattlesnakes and predators, 
who were always near after he had had a successful hunt. Even fire was dangerous, because at night it could be seen over long distances. He used brush and cliffs for cover in order to make it less visible. On day 56 of his escape, while resting in a prairie, Lee hears a rifle shot nearby. He grabs his rifle and prepares to defend himself, but he's relieved to see that it's not Comanche, but a group of sombrero-wearing Mexicans. His phrasing. They were deer hunting. The group was heading home to San Fernandez, near the Rio Grande. Seeing that Lee was in need of help, weak and malnourished, they take him in. He hasn't shaved or cut his hair in three years. They give him a horse to ride, water, and food. They don't even boil it and throw it at him. A week later, the group made it to San Fernandez. Lee stayed there for six weeks, healing under the care of a doctor. He soon catches a boat and makes his way to New York. His three years of Comanche is over. Lee writes, quote, I was home at last, and my adventures with the Indians were at an end forever. Although I would never forget the awful scenes of agony and torture I had witnessed among them. End quote. Now, in 1858, Lee is back on the East Coast, and he begins writing his book. And away from the untamed West, Lee never has to worry about serious violence breaking out ever again. There you have it. That's one. Hang on. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Ah, all right. That's uh, one uh, horror story there of the um, savagery of the the uh, Indians. Uh, you know, such innocent people. They were so kind and loving, and they just embraced the white people. I mean, they, it was they they gave us land. We just took too much of it. And then we, we just rounded them all up and marched them down the Trail of Tears. Oh, those poor Indians. Now they're just all stuck on those reservations with their casinos, gambling away. Listen, man, bottom line is they, these Indians fought with each other, number one, okay? They would eat each other. They're cannibalistic. They 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 were just total savages that would just couldn't take to any type of life of of uh of 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 better betterment i mean they didn't, they couldn't create anything or better themselves for a wind up watch they thought it was a god a wind up silver watch come on how stupid could you be i mean come on even if you've never seen a watch before so what yeah, you know oak 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 watch what that what that Gods, gods, you know, that's how they think. I mean, that's how they think, these Indians. And I say this because I wanted to do an encore of last night. There's a show on Blog Talk Radio, this the Indian, this is the Indian guy. I call him Chief J. Strongbow. Uh, this guy uh, and uh, his other one there, uh, um, Trail of Tears there, I call him. The other one is Sidekick there. Um, you know, they, 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 they have a blog talk show, and I just called in one night, and I was kind of agreeing with them there in the beginning, and then they, they just totally trashed me, and uh, white this, white that, I mean, talk about racist, talk about filthy language, pathetic, and their 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 re- recollection of history was just totally absurd, I mean, they had no idea what, it, I mean, and, and they double talk, they, they, they can't stand anything the white man does, but yet, there they are, Participating in it, buying his cars, spending with his money, buying his clothes, doing you know, doing, taking part in all the pleasures the white man offers him. Though, yeah. So 
this is why I'm doing it because they were just, and and they just totally trashed me. So uh, and, and hung up on me, and uh, so this show is dedicated to you, Chief J Strongbow. All right. Anyway, um, so uh, we've got another one here, real quick one here about these uh, these uh, these uh, uh, Indians, and uh, you know they're just. Um, they're really, 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 really savages. The Apaches were were really bad too. I mean, uh, you know, um, just um, just terrible, terrible, terrible. I, 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 there was another story about another guy that got caught. He, he was three. Yeah, he was a kid when he got caught. I'm trying to find that one. It's a good story. Uh, him and his um, sister and brother were out playing in a field, and. Uh, Indians snatched snatched off uh, just snatched up two of them, and they, the the uh, the little sister ran away. She played pretending she was dead, and then they grabbed the kid and they took the kid and they took him in as a, you know part of the tribe. You know they molded him in, and you know as a kid, 19 years later after being there from four years old or three years old on, he he learns to adapt to be a savage like the Indians, and he lost uh, didn't know how to speak or you know he would be him a savage, so. Uh, you know, but but he was later after when the Indians law, uh, lost all their land, um, and there was no Indians left in 1890s. Think it was or 1887, somewhere around there. Um, the last was wild Indian was uh, 1916 or 1911. I think I forgot his name, but uh, he was the last one living in the wild by himself. Um, and then uh, uh, and then he, uh, he lived with some white guy or whatever. He died at the age of 54 because he caught tuberculosis. Uh, so uh, a lot of people caught that back then, but the last wild Indian anyway, but the last tribes that were, you know, where, where they had a conflict and everything, I believe it was 1867 to 1879, that vicinity, you know, they were roaming around all the way to about 1900, you can bet that, and I bet they were probably roaming around in the 1920s and 30s in the wilderness out there in the northwest in Canada and Alaska. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a couple of them out there in the woods today, you never know. I mean, you know, uh, that's what we could be seeing when they saw us. They see Big, Bigfoot, you know. You see a man that's, you know, six foot tall, six feet, six foot five or whatever, hasn't shaved all his life, you know, uh, hasn't taken a bath all his life. What do you what, what do you think that's going to look like, folks? What do you think that's going to look like? A beast. So, uh, you know, so, um, you know, so anyway, let me check the phone boards here just to make sure I ain't got any callers here who want to jump in here. No callers? All righty, that's good. Okay, so we'll go back to my documentary here, because I really want to get these documentaries uh, out there about the Indians. All right. Um, so stomach-churning things come as she did to pregnant. Oh, well, that could be a good one right there. Let's see. Uh, Tales of ATC Seuss. See what's Max serve late now. All right, see. Um, giant encounters in the old Americas now. Um, well, let's see. Where is it? The horrifying fate of Carolina Pilot. Well, Apache Manhunt. Uh, terrifying stories of the most terrible. Um, Mountain Man vs. Apache. Let's, let's try that one real quick. Mountain Man vs. Uh, see that was what that one's about. It's not too long, so let's try that one. Let's see what we've got here. Come on, I'm these dumb commercials. May 27th, 1831. Present day southern Kansas. A group of New Mexico based merchants are gathered in a tight cluster making their way southwest down the Cimarone River. They are nervous, with an unspoken tension pervading the air that surrounds their small party. They have stopped to take a respite from the late spring heat, 
having just completed the trading they had come so far to engage in. But here, in the open expanses of the prairie, business was not always just business. Things here on the southern plains could, and often did, devolve quickly into overt, horrific violence. It was not wholly uncommon for an enterprising, overly optimistic merchant to venture out into these lands with hopes of brokering highly profitable trades and solidifying lucrative relationships with the rulers of this harsh, unremitting territory, the Comanche. Many of these hopeful capitalists were simply never seen again. Some returned wealthy men, some returned traumatized survivors of Comanche wrath. These merchants, though, had managed to broker mutually beneficial relationships with the Comanche that had lasted for decades by this point in the early 19th century. They had occupied the territories of what is now the state of New Mexico and was then known as New Spain for generations, nearly as long as the Comanche. In the preceding century and a half, the Comanche had unleashed a torrent of violence across what are now the states of Kansas, Colorado, Oklahoma, Texas, and New Mexico. Their motivations were in part retribution, payback for their cruel treatment at the hands of neighboring tribes like the Cheyenne and Blackfoot, and in part, ambition. They, like the Spanish to the south, were intent on capturing as much of the wide open expanses of the American frontier as possible. But for all their reputation as war fighters and empire builders, they were also incredibly adept traders. Of course, the threat of mortal violence is a powerful bargaining chip but the Comanche prided themselves on being knowledgeable and formidable negotiators in bartering for the goods they desired. These New Mexico merchants had largely avoided the violence of Comanche expansion by providing them with a reliable, sustainable source of trade for the goods they valued but could not produce themselves. The Comanche possessed the largest collective swath of North American territory of any tribe on the continent. They were rich in land, buffalo meat, buffalo hides, but they had no tradition in pottery, nor weaving, nor any access to metals such as copper and iron that they highly prized. The iron was highly prized for use as arrow and spearheads, while the copper was often beaten into discs and worn as jewelry on necklaces, bracelets, or woven into the long braids of thick hair the Comanche prided themselves on. Many of the paints that they could procure from traders were of more vibrant hues and resilient finishes than the ones they made themselves from natural dyes and animal fats. Cotton shirts, hats, jewelry, and of course, firearms were all prized to differing degrees by the Comanche. And, more often than not, the Comanche bartered with men like this small group of weary, weather-beaten traders who were often comprised of small bands of family members or close friends. They were the descendants of Spanish settlers who had often intermarried into the surrounding tribes. Their way of life in the desolate expanses of New Mexico and West Texas was a perpetually difficult, dangerous affair. But after peace with the Comanche had been brokered by Governor Juan Bautista de Anza in 1778, trade between the Spanish descendant settlers of New Spain and the Comanche began in earnest. Before long, a regular system of trade was established where intrepid bands of traders ventured out into the no-man's land that was Comancheria. Most were men from hard backgrounds who found little comparable opportunity anywhere else. Many died hard, horrendous deaths at the hands of the Comanche 
or other tribes like the Apache or the Kiowa. Many were robbed, many were killed, and many robbed and killed others. They developed their own fringe society away from the norms of New Spain or the burgeoning power of the United States. They became known as Comancheros for their proclivity and aptitude for dealing with a tribe whose mere mention could send waves of panic through settlements all through Texas and Mexico. This particular group of Comancheros here on the Cimarron River had traveled a long way to conduct their business and now only hoped to get home with their profits as soon as possible. They spoke briefly in their huddled formation about the trades that they had made, the profits they had taken, and their unanimous desire to put distance between themselves and the party of Comanche they had just traded with. To a man, the small party was aware that there was nothing to stop the Comanche from trailing them for a while, only to kill them all, recoup the items they had traded away, and walk away with little to no consequence. But just as they were about to resume their course southward, one of them spots a figure only a few hundred yards in the distance. Even at this distance, it is clear the figure approaching them on horseback is not a Comanche. As the rider comes toward them, he attempts to wave them down to engage in conversation. As he draws nearer, it becomes apparent that he is an American. In fact, though the Comancheros would have no way of knowing it, this was one of the most well-known and well-traveled Americans alive at the time. While the Comancheros knew the vast expanses of their homeland like the backs of their hands, they did not know, nor in many instances could they scarcely imagine, the scope or extremity of this American man's travels in the previous decade. Barring but a few possible exceptions, this lone writer had seen more of the North American continent than anyone alive at the time. He had come from upstate New York, worked on freighter ships that sailed the expanses of the Great Lakes, and made his way to the burgeoning city of St. Louis. From there, he had traveled from the Dakotas to the Rocky Mountains, the Mojave Desert, the missions of Southern California, the San Joaquin Valley, the Sierra Nevadas, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and then all the way north through present-day Oregon and Washington into Canada. He had survived the deadliest attacks on record from the Arikara in South Dakota to the Mojave in California to the Umpqua in Oregon. He had worked with and under some of the most legendary names in mountain man history, men like William Ashley, Hugh Glass, Jim Bridger, William Wolfskill, Milton Sublett, William Sublett, Joseph Meek, and Bill Williams, to name but a few. Most of the men he had traveled and worked with, though, had died violent deaths in their pursuit of fortune in the wilds of a continent that they, in the initial throes of manifest destiny, believed to be rightfully and inherently theirs. He had narrowly survived a vicious mauling by an enraged grizzly bear, one that necessitated his ear being sewn back onto his head by a crude frontier surgery without the benefit of anesthetic. This incident left him permanently scarred and saw him wear his hair longer from then on in order to hide the scars. He had been detained by Mexican officials in California who were in fact rightfully dubious as to the intentions of these curiously dressed Americans who claimed they were merely passing through their bountiful territory.
You might be asking yourself, can you actually create high-quality live streams for free? Well, with StreamYard, the answer is yes. StreamYard allows you to live stream up to 20 hours a month with a host of built-in features that you can access from their cloud-based servers right now for free. And when you're ready to take your stream to an even higher level, StreamYard offers affordable plans that allow you to open up even more features to make your live streams really stand out from the crowd. StreamYard. Live streaming made simple. Average people are becoming millionaires faster and easier than ever before. But how do they do it? According to the news, the whole world's falling apart. Well, that's the million-dollar question. Now, if you're not interested in the million-dollar answer, go ahead and skip to the end of this video, and I'm sorry for wasting your time. And in the next 60 seconds, I'm going to teach you the fastest way that I've found to become a millionaire in the new economy. Hi, my name is Jeff Lerner, and I did not become a millionaire the traditional way. I didn't work 40 years for the man, didn't invent anything, definitely didn't. Through it all, he had remained steadfast in his faith as a Methodist and his ardent commitment to the venture capitalism he hoped would provide for his family. His name was Jedediah Strong Smith. Just the year before, he had made his way back to St. Louis, cashed in on the pelts he had collected at the price of so many lives lost and miles covered, and vowed never to enter the mountains again. He purchased a sizable home on what is now Broadway Street in St. Louis and sent a banknote for $1,500 back to Ohio in order to purchase land neighboring one of his brother's farms. Three of his younger brothers had come to live with him in St. Louis, where he hoped to be able to provide them with better economic opportunity than he had found upon his initial forays from home at their age. He repeatedly swore in numerous correspondence to family and friends that his days in the mountains were done. His mother had recently passed away, and the incessant internal tumult that had hounded him since he left home, another sentiment that often litters the journal entries and letters of Jedediah Smith, incessantly harped at his conscience that he should father. But in the time since returning to St. Louis in 1829 and the spring of 1831, the incessant wanderlust that had driven him to such distances began to drown out the guilt that he felt for his extended departure from his home and family. He had written to the Secretary of War, John Eden, requesting to be made part of a proposed military expedition into the Rocky Mountains. To be sure, there would be few men in the world more qualified to lead the expedition than Jedediah Smith. But Smith never received a response from Eden, and the expedition never materialized. Smith then began to look towards the prospect of publishing his memoirs along with the numerous maps he had compiled during his travels. Even throughout the most dire of times in his travels, Smith had, with at least some measure of consistency, recorded his thoughts in a series of journals. In addition, he was a skilled cartographer whose maps were accurate and reliable. He hoped to illuminate the entirety of the eastern seaboard and perhaps even Europe with tales of his exploits complete with the maps that he had drawn. 
to do this, though, he felt he needed to add at least one trip to his already expansive list of expeditions. The town of Santa Fe, in what is now the state of New Mexico, had been growing in population and reputation as a trading post and way stop on the trip to California. And so, after not hearing back from Secretary of War Eaton, Smith decided to sign on with an expedition to Santa Fe with William Sublett and David Jackson. The three men would lead a wagon train carrying roughly $20,000 in goods to Santa Fe. Smith also enlisted Samuel Parkman to assist in arranging his writings and maps into a publishable manuscript, as well as to polish his Spanish skills so that he might decipher some of the Spanish terms recorded in Smith's diaries with more accuracy. The trail from St. Louis to Santa Fe was well-traveled and even in 1831 was considered well-established and comparatively safe. Few lives were lost annually to either privation or attacks from natives. In comparison to the trips Smith had been making for the past decade, this endeavor would have seemed to be a relatively easy affair, despite the distance being over 1,000 miles. The wagon train, complete with 83 men, left for Santa Fe in the spring of 1831, in high spirits with aspirations of completing a timely, profitable trip. They headed southwest, and initially, all had gone well. Then, trouble began to befall the party. First, on May 19th, a company clerk who had long worked for Sublet and Jackson, a man recorded only as Minter, was murdered by Pawnee warriors when he wandered off from the main party near the Pawnee River, a tributary of the Arkansas River. Then, the water began to run out. By May 27th, the party was completely out of water for both men and livestock. All the established water sources on the trail had thus far proven dried up. On that morning, much the same as they had for the previous few mornings, Smith and his cohorts would tear up and fan out in different directions from their camp in an attempt to find any viable water sources. Smith and his partner, a man named Fitzpatrick, headed south on that morning, hoping to find a spring on the north side of the Cimarron River. Breaking scientific research shows that there's an everyday vegetable that inflames diabetes symptoms. This common vegetable is responsible for causing deadly spikes in blood sugar, increased fat storage, brain fog, arterial plaque, and debilitating chronic fatigue. You might be eating this veggie every day, believing it to be super healthy, like everyone else does. But it's actually the true cause of high blood sugar. Simply cutting this vegetable out of your diet is clinically shown to trigger a diabetes-reversing mechanism that slashes your blood sugar in the first 48 hours. That means no more finger pricks, insulin shots, or doctor's visits ever again. The crazy part is that this dangerous vegetable can be found in your backyard or local grocery store and avoiding it can quickly restore years worth of nerve and eye damage and lower your blood sugar in just a matter of days. So if you're struggling with blurry vision, loss of feeling in your feet, high blood pressure, or any other complication from diabetes or pre-diabetes, then this discovery can save your life. Stop what you're doing and click the link below to see a short free special video that will show you exactly... The Cimarron itself flows through several mineral deposits, rendering the water not potable as it is too salty. However, several springs lie nearby the river which do produce drinkable water. Smith and Fitzpatrick thought perhaps they were getting close that morning when they had happened upon a depression in the flat landscape that harbored damp ground at its lowest point. Smith directed Fitzpatrick to stay there 
and attempt to dig for water in the depression, while he rode ahead to see if there were any springs nearby. While Fitzpatrick began digging, Smith headed off further south. Within a few miles, he was out of sight of Fitzpatrick. Within a few more, he came into sight of this band of Comancheros. The Comancheros are alarmed. The legendary mountain man lopes his horse towards them, speaking to them in broken Spanish, asking where water might be found. To the Comancheros, he presents a clear and present danger, not only to himself, but to them as well. The Comancheros offer him no water, and only point him towards a spring a few miles away. The Comancheros offer him no water, and only point him towards a spring a few miles away. They also inform him, in concise, broken English, that the Comanche were nearby, and that he would not be able to avoid them, no matter his next move. Furthermore, he is informed that he must make the next move immediately, as he presented a liability to the Comancheros' party. Should the Comanche find him in their company, they might suppose him to be a spy and kill them all. This was not a risk the Comancheros were willing to take for the lonesome and now doubtless fear-stricken American. He was on his own. Seeing no better course of action, Jedediah Smith continues on in the direction of the spring the Comancheros had informed him of. He departs from the Comancheros, resolutely making his way forward and mustering all the courage and wherewithal he might bring to bear. He and his party would surely die without the water, and while he knew there was a very real possibility that the Comanche would usher him into an even more immediate end, Smith saw little other course of action. As the Comancheros watch from a distance, he makes his way further south to what is now known as Wagon Bed Spring in southwestern Kansas. Just before he reaches the spring, a band of 15 to 20 Comanches come upon him. They have spotted Smith before he even departed the Comanchero party and spent the time it took him to ride to the spring discussing in Spanish what they would do with this trespassing American. For all intents and purposes, Smith and his company were indeed trespassing. In fact, the entire trade they had been plying for the past decade or more was technically illegal and in violation of numerous treaties that forbade hunting and trapping in native or foreign lands. The Comanche, though, are not concerned with the legalities of any particular treaty on this day. They see him as an intolerable interloper, a representative of a people who have sought to invade their lands. Also, they may have seen him as sport. Smith does his best to stay calm, hailing the Comanche with a smile and signing to them in the ubiquitous sign language of the plains that he was merely passing through and hoping to slake his thirst as well as his horses. He searches the faces of the Comanche warriors who surround him, the notoriously stout and rugged-looking ponies, striking such an odd juxtaposition against their master's formidable reputation. The Comanche, too, look different than any of the other tribes Smith has encountered on the plains. They themselves are shorter and stockier than their northern plains counterparts, with, especially at this time in the early 19th century, little of the cosmetic adornments of their plains cohorts, such as war bonnets or white-boned breastplates. The Comanche, in particular, cut a stark, terrifying figure, even for the most experienced of travelers on the frontier. And, in accordance with their reputation, no warrior among them returns Smith's smile or salutations. 
For a few tense, terrifying seconds, the two parties stare silently at each other. Then, the Comanche begin to encircle Smith, moving into their positions while taunting Smith's horse, trying to spook him into throwing his rider. Smith, for his part, still attempts to broker some kind of peace that might allow him to trade some of his valuables for his safe passage back to his party. But as the situation rapidly develops, it becomes clear that the Comanche are not interested in any deal. Just as the Comanche have Smith half-surrounded in a crescent moon formation, a shot rings out from a Comanche rifle. A lead ball tears into Jedediah Smith's right shoulder as the noise simultaneously startles his horse, causing both animal and rider to wheel about 180 degrees. Smith had laid his Kentucky rifle across his lap before being accosted by the Comanche, and as his horse turned, Smith managed to shoulder the weapon and return fire, killing one of the warriors, whom later accounts would describe as a chief. As the Comanche warrior's body slumps from his mount and thuds to the hard Kansas dirt, Jedediah Smith reaches for one of the two single-shot pistols he keeps tucked in his belt. In the seconds it takes to accomplish this, the remaining Comanche warriors, now fully enraged at the killing of one of their own, pounce upon Smith, knocking him off of his horse. As soon as he hits the ground, it is all but certain Jedediah Smith knows he is going to die. The Comanche have spent so much effort attaining their empire in the southern plains largely because of the immense buffalo herds that reliably roamed its expanses. In order to kill the gigantic, aggressive, and fleet-of-foot buffalo, the Comanche often employed the use of 12 to 14-foot spears that could be used to stab a buffalo from a distance. The animal would be struck under the ribs so that the most damage might be done to the target's internal organs. The same tactic was employed against human enemy targets. From atop their stout ponies, the remaining Comanche drove their lances into the torso of America's most legendary, accomplished mountain men. The attack is incredibly swift and unspeakably violent. As the Comanche mock and club the dying man, the only mercy for the unfortunate Smith is that it is all over in a matter of seconds. As his body lies lifeless, covered in blood and plains dust, the Comanche strap their dead compatriot to his horse, take Smith's horse, his guns, and valuables, and leave him to the buzzards and the summer sun. Jedediah Smith's body would never be found, and it would be days later until the Comancheros would encounter the sublet Jackson party on the Santa Fe Trail. Here, they would produce Smith's pistols and rifle to his grief-stricken younger brother, Austin. The Comancheros had traded the Comanche for the items after their murder of Smith and acquired the Comanche's side of the story. They corroborated this with their own eyewitness accounts, and these accounts were relayed back to Smith's elderly widower father in Ohio in a letter from Austin Smith. The letter, heart-wrenching in its revelations even two centuries later, reads as follows. Your son Jedediah was killed on the Cimarron the 27th of May on his way to Santa Fe by the Kermanche engines. His party was in distress for water, and he had gone alone in search of the above river, which he found when he was attacked by 15 or 20 of them. They succeeded in alarming his animal, not daring to fire on him so long as they kept face to face. 
So soon as his horse turned, they fired and wounded him in the shoulder. He then fired his gun and killed their head chief. It is supposed they rushed upon him and dispatched him. An obituary would be published for him that fall in the Illinois Intelligencer, but no mention of his death was made in his adopted hometown of St. Louis's local publication. His memoirs and maps would not only not be published, but his legacy and legend would be largely forgotten by the public for the better part of a century and a half. Jedediah Smith never married, nor had any children. In his brief 32 years, he had managed to incessantly, seemingly impulsively, pursue his intentions of wealth and security to ends that had thus far been unheard of in American history. To add even more to the decidedly unserendipitous nature of Smith's final expedition, the remainder of the party on the Santa Fe Trail, including Sublette, Jackson, and Smith's younger brother, Austin, were all able to find water and eventually make their way safely to Santa Fe. From here, Austin Smith would pursue his own successful career in mercantilism, and Sublett and Jackson would continue on to California in order to return with a large remuda of horses and mules to trade and sell in Santa Fe and Missouri. In the entirety of the year of 1831, the only lives lost on the Santa Fe Trail would be those of the unfortunate mentor at the hands of the Pawnee and Smith at the hands of the Comanche. Life in the Old West was always hard and often cheap. The violence and hardships that befell people of all races, religions, and backgrounds could be startlingly indiscriminate and stunningly swift. And so it was that one of the most expansive, interesting lives in American history was snuffed out. Despite all his exploits, he found himself but a stranger in a strange land, in the wrong place, at the wrong time. All right. The journey to becoming a University of Phoenix student is easier than you might think. There's no application. the most notorious outlaw in the Old West. Some say Billy the Kid kills 21 men by the time he's 21. In myth, he's a lone outlaw. Look, there goes Brady. Oh, hell it is Brady. Let's go. In reality, his story is a lot murkier. A tale of rival gangs with a brutal sense of justice. No book, no movie has ever truly nailed the kid's personality. To this day, he is still an enigma. Who was the real Billy the Kid? A cowboy with a higher code of honor? Or a cold-blooded killer? We know Billy the Kid helped create the Wild West. What we don't know is how the West New Mexico, 1878. 
the wildest reaches of the American Southwest. Life is so hard that 80% of the population is under 30. Billy the Kid is only 18, but he's already a survivor. Billy the Kid lived a ruthless life without family, especially once his mother died when he was 13, 14 years old and uh, had no one. Billy's mother died of tuberculosis in a time when disease and hunger create an epidemic of orphans. So Billy's story is a common one, even down to his nickname, The Kid. There were many uh, people in the Old West, many wayward young boys who went by The Kid. Billy the Kid, for example. What was his real name? Well, we think Henry McCarty, the son of Irish immigrants born in New York City. Billy the Kid took many names. One that he was best known by was William H. Bonney, his alias. He was always like many young people. He's only a teenager. He's always searching. He's always searching for some kind of connection. Billy's search takes him to the tiny frontier town of Lincoln, New Mexico, population 400. Historian Drew Gomber lives in Lincoln and probably knows more about Billy than anyone else. When Billy first arrives in Lincoln, this quiet little street out here is the most dangerous street in the United States. Lincoln is run by a corrupt monopoly, as deadly as the modern mafia. They control virtually everything, from businesses and stores to law enforcement. The government of New Mexico, the forces of law in Lincoln County, are incredibly corrupt, and they're killers. This is very reminiscent of a modern gang war that we would find in organized crime. It was just the Old West. How can a teenage kid survive in this violent frontier town alone? There's a clue in a common piece of cowboy gear. Spurs. Billy's spurs come from the Mexican vaqueros, the first real cowboys. The flashy vaquero spurs reflect the Mexican's bold horsemanship. Anglo cowboys adapted the spurs and gave them colorful nicknames like buzzsaws and cowboy steel. The cowboys owe their survival to the vaquero's tools and techniques. It is the Spanish heritage that is the basis of uh, the American cowboy. They established the saddles. They established uh, roping techniques. In fact, our words for lariat, for instance, come from them. The vaqueros teach Billy to rope and ride and speak Spanish. Billy the Kid was heavily influenced by the Spanish culture that was so prevalent throughout New Mexico. He learned their language and he moved easily in that culture at a time when most white people did not. The skills Billy learns from the vaqueros will one day save his life. For now, they help him land a job as a cowboy. His boss is a young English rancher named John Tunstall. Billy immediately feels at home with Tunstall's other ranch hands. Many are like him, on their own at a young age, having left family farms for the more independent life of a cowboy. There was a sense in Billy of, of connection. 
access to these people that he had never had in his young life. Billy's new employer also fills a big gap in Billy's life. In the legend of Billy the Kid, John Tunstall, the refined, educated Englishman, becomes Billy's surrogate father, the father he never really had. He educates him. He gives him a job. He gives him a future. He gives him a family. He gives this orphan boy everything that he's never had. Tunstall has given Billy a rifle, a Winchester 73, and a horse. And these are probably the only gifts that anybody has ever given the kid. Billy is fiercely loyal for this reason. But by pledging his loyalty to Tunstall, Billy chooses sides in Lincoln's growing conflict. When Tunstall came to town, he dared to challenge the corrupt men ruling the county. They already were controlling most of the trade and cattle traffic in uh, Lincoln County. Well, John Tunstall set out to break their monopoly, and he was going to be just as ruthless as, as they were in doing this. The conflict fits Tunstall's John Tunstall has come to Lincoln with big plans. In pursuit of his dreams of wealth and power, he has purchased a ranch and built this store to go into competition with the status quo. This store was Tunstall's base of operations. General stores like this provided local ranch families with everything they couldn't grow or make themselves. From dry goods to candy to ammunition. In Lincoln, as in many western towns, store owners became the town power brokers. For John Tunstall, the store represents the hub of his burgeoning empire. For him, it's the future. The way this place is constructed, it's almost as though Tunstall knew what was going to happen. Aside from the standard 18 inches to 2 foot thick adobe walls, all of these wooden shutters have steel plates in between the wood slats. In fact, you can see one through this hole. Ain't no bullet gonna go through that. February 18th, 1878. The tension comes to a head. Billy is out riding with Tunstall and his other ranch hands. A stranger approaches. Sent by Lincoln Sheriff William Brady. 
we got to do something about this. They'll have to take the law into their own hands and depend on each other. They christen their gang the Regulators and vow they'll make the sheriff pay for his crime. Let's go, boys.
The Winchester 73 rifle is known as the gun that won the West. It's the most popular civilian rifle ever made, with more than half a million produced by the turn of the century alone. It used the same ammunition as revolvers of the day, great for cowboys and outlaws traveling light. And it was one of the very first repeating rifles, meaning it could fire multiple... Hey, are you working for an independent shop? Just starting out changing oil or tires? Have a strong multiple shots without reloading. The ideal gun for an impromptu ambush. This is the famed Winchester 73. Billy the Kid loved this gun, so did just about everybody else, and it had a number of wonderful advantages for any outlaw in the West. First of all, very rugged. Technologically, it's a skip forward from everything that came before it. It's loaded from the breech. You don't have to turn the gun up. You simply load from the back. That means your barrel is always pointed towards your enemy, even when you're reloading. This feature comes in handy for Billy during the ambush. So does the Winchester's firepower, shooting 15 rounds in 60 seconds. Has one other advantage. While it's not a long-range gun, and it's not a big game gun, it's certainly powerful enough to take down most medium-sized game even if that game happens to be human. Billy and his gang get their revenge. But now, they face a new challenge. How to escape. Then, as now, killing a sheriff, even a corrupt one, was a capital offense. They must get clear of Lincoln before the law picks up their trail, before their horses run out of steam. Historians know that Billy and his gang were able to outrun the law. What they don't know is how. An innovation in veterinary medicine could hold the answer. It's a high-speed treadmill built for horses. Lola the horse is hooked up to an EKG machine to measure her heart rate during exercise. You look at outlaws running from the law, they obviously have to get away fast and furious. After Billy's getaway, one option is to keep his horse at a trot. Well, right now we're at the trot, which is probably a pretty easy gait and pace for them to maintain for long periods of time. Billy would be able to go about 25 to 30 miles without stop. But Billy probably wanted to travel much faster. So now we're going up to the gallop, which is the fastest gate uh, in the horse. So this is what Billy's going to use for his initial getaway. Uh, the record uh, for horses is anywhere between 40 and 50 miles per hour. Just about 30 miles per hour, which is a pace that she can maintain, you know, for probably a mile, maybe two at the most. At this extreme, the stress on a horse is clear. In the Old West, cowboys like Billy intuitively knew how to cover distance without exhausting their horses. Now it looks like Lola 
is reaching her capacity. She's starting to get tired, so we don't want to push her any further and, and risk injury or fatigue, so she can't keep going at all. So now we're going to bring her back down from the gallop to the trot and the walk and start cooling her off. Billy is a smart rider and a smart horseman. So he really is going to know what to do when his horse is starting to fatigue. Cowboys on a trail drive would use up to four horses in a day, but Billy only has one. When he needs a replacement, his best bet is to steal it. Billy and his gang probably wait until what cowboys call a rustler's moon, when there's just enough light to see without being seen. Under the law, the penalty for horse stealing could be a year or two in jail. But vigilante justice is far harsher. If a man lost his horse in the Old West, this could mean death. You just might not make it to the next uh, waterhole or the next settlement, and there's likelihood you could die. And this meant when justice was administered by any kind of vigilantes, he had often meant the thief was hanged. Billy and his buddies are running for their lives. If they're caught, there will be no mercy.
for the most part, people didn't know what a particular outlaw looked like. And it usually took somebody who had known a particular wanted figure, a particular fugitive, uh, earlier in their career, who could uh, capture them because they could identify them. In the mid-1800s, photography is just becoming accessible. Tintypes use caustic chemicals to burn images onto metal plates. They're cheap and sturdy, costing less than a quarter, about $5 today. The one known image of Billy the Kid is a tintype. But instead of providing Bauman with a clue, it's confusing. This tintype shows Billy's Winchester on his right side and his Colt revolver on his left. People looked at that photograph, assumed he's left-handed, and there we get a, a novel and a, and a screenplay of a left-handed gun. Well, Billy the Kid was not a southpaw, he was right-handed. And actually, it was just a, a negative, the image had been reversed. It wasn't until years later that the image was finally corrected. As word slowly spreads of Billy's crime, he's never more than a few hoofbeats ahead of the law. He keeps to the woods and fields of Lincoln County. At 30,000 square miles, it's the largest county in the U.S. But in Billy's day, it has less than 2,000 residents. The sparse population gives Billy room to elude trackers. Rick Simpson is a modern tracker who typically hunts wild game. But his tactics are very similar to the men who tracked outlaws in Billy's day. Whether we're tracking humans or whether we're tracking animals, one thing we have to keep in mind is you cannot follow every inch of the trail. So we have to learn to think like our quarry or whatever it is we're tracking. Rick is familiar with Billy's trail and knows how hard it must have been to track him. Billy, for example, he went over the Capitan Mountains. These mountains are solid rock. Nothing will leave a track in here at all. But there's one risk Billy can't avoid, though it compromises his safety. Here we have a nice little creek. And even a lone rider that's running from the law, they've got to have water, which is to the advantage of the tracker because all he's got to do is know where the water holes are. Most Western men of Billy's era are skilled hunters. They know how animals hide their tracks, so they copy their ways. If I were Billy, I had to cross this creek. I wouldn't just ride across it. I would get in it, and I would ride down it until I found a good place that was real rocky to get out where I couldn't be tracked. There's no doubt Billy knows this trick and uses it to evade his trackers. Billy also has an unusual advantage over most outlaws in New Mexico at the time. His fluent Spanish and strong childhood bonds with the vaqueros. Many Anglos of his day treat local Hispanics with contempt, but not Billy. So they shelter him when he's on the run. He is very at home with the Hispanic families that live here, and they love it. He speaks Spanish fluently. He never condescends, and for that reason, the local Hispanics loved him. 
Tales for a Mexican-American Girl, Paulita Maxwell. Intermarriage is fairly common at the time, but Paulita's family objects to Billy because he's an outlaw. So he visits her in secret. Billy the Kid was a babe magnet in today's terms. For whatever reason, he attracted the ladies. While in hiding, Billy receives urgent news from Lincoln. John Tunstall's business partner, Alexander McSween, is in danger. The corrupt gang that murdered Tunstall now targets McSween. Billy and his gang vow to protect him. They risk it all to return to Lincoln, where they're still wanted for the killing of Sheriff Brady. They barricade themselves inside McSween's home, behind its two-foot-thick adobe walls. They stockpile arms and ammunition, determined to protect McSween from Tunstall's fate. The kid and the other regulators were all heavily armed and firmly entrenched in the fortress-like McSween house. It was a problem of epic proportions to get them out, and their opposition knew it. The lawmen gather outside the house. The gunfight reveals the essence of Billy's character and appeal. Here was a young man who was dedicated to his vision of justice who lived in a world of swirling corruption in which the figures that wore badges actually used murder to accomplish their end. And he fought against it. Get back, get back! Five days into the gunfight, neither side is closer to victory. Until the fifth night. Experienced Army officers who were present that night estimated there were 2,000 rounds expended that night alone. Lawmen come up with a brutal plan to force Billy and his gang into the open. You don't have to wait for a new semester to start class at University of Phoenix. With up to 18... The events to come will transform Billy into the legend we know today. Alexander McSween is killed, it only steals their resolve. But the sheriff finds a way to breach their defenses. Ultimate test of his character and loyalty. 
Everyone else pulls back, but Billy won't. He just keeps going because he's determined that he's going to deliver his version of justice out of a six-year. Despite his youth, he was a natural leader. He was recklessly bold, courageous. People gravitated towards him and looked toward, uh, to him for leadership. We managed to escape in the confusion and the darkness. And then, and only then, did he command, to some extent, a group of then outlaws. Billy emerged as a leader because he was smart. Uh, because he was charismatic and because he was absolutely fearless. Billy's actions that night not only show what really motivates him, they reveal why his story continues to resonate. It's the essential sort of cowboy code. He won't compromise. He's who he is, and he plays his string out to the very end. In the coming months, Billy kills again. Some say as many as 18 people. But he always believes he's on the side of justice. Today we would call him sort of a sociopath. Every killing that he engaged in, he excused. And he had an excuse for everything, which, of course, teenagers often do anyway. But he sensed that um, he was on the side of right. And uh, it was that clear vision he had that made him the leader in that area when he's only 18, 19 years old. By autumn 1878, the Lincoln County gang war has been raging for almost a year, costing both sides dearly in money and human lives. The friends Billy fought for are dead and buried. After the death of Tunstall and McSween, the kid and the regulators had no real focus anymore. Some of them drifted off to other places. Some stayed around here with Billy and decided to, as Billy said, steal themselves a living. But in Lincoln County, there's an important shift. This obscure area of southeastern New Mexico become national news. And the citizens of Lincoln County themselves were uh, tired of it. After month, after month, after month of warfare and having their daily lives uh, interrupted. The war even captures the attention of President Rutherford B. Hayes. He appoints a new territorial governor to clean up war-torn Lincoln County. As part of the trend, the citizens also elect a strong new sheriff, Pat Garrett. Imposing physical figure, he uh, stood well over six foot four, tall, lanky uh, Pat Garrett. A uh, lean, just uh, muscle bone and, and sinew, and a, uh, evidently a fearless uh, character, had a bit of mean streak in him. First on his to-do list is nabbing Billy the Kid. Unlike other lawmen, Garrett has a decided advantage. He knows what Billy looks like. Pat Garrett was a perfect man to track down Billy the Kid. Pat Garrett had known him before the uh, Lincoln County War erupted. He knew Billy's habits, and he knew his favorite haunts. So when Pat Garrett set out on his trail, he had a pretty good idea where Billy the Kid would be and what he'd be doing. For Billy, the stakes have never been higher. He's become the face of the violence. 
Pat Garrett begins a war of attrition aimed at what Billy cares for most, his buddies. Garrett and his deputies kill one of the kid's best friends, then soon after, they pick off another. In December 1880, Pat Garrett's men finally arrest Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid was the leader of the Regulators. Well, chop off the head. And arresting Billy the Kid, most everyone in Lincoln County thought that would be the end of the Lincoln County War. Deputy Bob Ollinger bullies him into his new quarters. Billy won't forget Ollinger's rough treatment. Billy is singled out. He's charged with Sheriff Brady's murder and sentenced to death by hanging. It's really amazing that Billy is the only person tried for the killing of Sheriff Brady when he was one of six men actually shooting at Brady that day. And yet still, he was the only one tried for the crime. Like many small towns in the Old West, Lincoln has no real jail. So Billy is handcuffed in Pat Garrett's second floor office. Makeshift Western jails like this are notoriously insecure. Many prisoners escape by chipping through old masonry, or they flee when taken to the privy. As soon as Billy arrives, he starts testing how he can beat the system. You're an interesting man. are not comfortable. They're not comfortable today, and they weren't comfortable when people like Billy the Kid wore them over a century ago. Comfort, however, is probably the least of their shortcomings. They had a couple of problems, and technology was one of them. This is the first. It looks like a normal key, but it's not. These devices didn't work by a normal locking system with a key. They worked by spring. The key is a screw that retracts a spring, and as you can see, it takes quite some time get them off. Imagine trying to put these on a man who is not cooperating. It simply can't happen. Billy does cooperate when they put on his handcuffs. Maybe he knows their other flaw. Part of the problem is this device is one size fits all. If you're very large, they don't work. Now what does a jailer do? If you're very small, you can compress your hand and pull right through. Billy the Kid is in luck. The handcuffs he wears are the one-size-fits-all version, which give prisoners with smaller hands a better chance of slipping free. Adjustable handcuffs were invented in 1862, but remote towns like Lincoln didn't have them yet. Billy, according to at least one story, had demonstrated to his guards that because he had big wrists and small hands, he was able to slip out of the manacles. And according to the story, guards actually thought this was funny. The court's plan is for Billy to remain chained in the improvised jail for a month until his execution. But Billy has been working on his own plan. Hey, Bill. Deputy J.W. Bell, one of Billy's guards, has the dangerous job of moving him when necessary. 
Billy asks to use the outhouse and never returns to his makeshift cell. Lincoln County Courthouse, April 28, 1881. No one knows exactly how Billy the Kid makes his amazing escape. Even experts like Drew Gomber are only certain of how it begins. Pat Garrett is out of town, and Bob Bollinger's across the street with the other five prisoners. This leaves Billy alone with J.W. Bell. He asks Bell to be taken out back to the privy, which is the only way he can get unchained from the floor, and Bell can hardly refuse. On the way back in, one of three things happens. First theory is that Billy rushes ahead up the stairwell, lunges into the armory, and then comes back and shoots Bell on the stairwell at the top of the stairs. This, for me, defies belief. The second theory, which is more believable, is that there was a pistol left for Billy in the outhouse by a friend. And when they came back in, Billy simply turned around and shot Bell. The third story, the one that I personally believe, is that Billy and Bell came up the stairs and Billy slipped out of his manacles. This is something we know he could do. He hit Bell over the head with the manacles. The two men then struggled for the gun. Billy got it and shot Bell. At that point, he turned, lunged into the armory where he grabbed Ollinger's shotgun out of the rack. Billy then hurried across the upstairs of the courthouse because he knew that Ollinger would be rushing across the street when he heard the gunfire. Billy watches for Deputy Ollinger from a second-story window. According to eyewitness accounts, Billy rushes to this window as Ollinger hurries across the street, alerted by the sound of the gunfire. As he draws underneath the window, Bob hears a chillingly cheery and familiar voice call out, Hello, Bob. Billy pulls both triggers on the shotgun. Ollinger is hit by 18 buckshot, killing him instantly. He falls to the ground, a dead man killed by his own shotgun. If Billy kills Bell to escape, he kills Ollinger in ruthless cold blood. But Billy has gained celebrity status. Some townspeople now cheer him on and even help him flee. They cut off his shackles and supplied him with everything he needed and he rode out of town. With his escape, Billy the Kid assures himself a place in the legend of the Old West. This one-time teenage drifter becomes the star of national news and dime novels. So in every way, the story captured national attention. Uh, so much so that Billy the Kid became a larger-than-life character, and really a legend in his own time. He was youthful, he was daring, and of course, like young people, he felt he was immortal. And why wouldn't he? After all the daring scrapes he had been in, after escaping from the Lincoln County Jail and killing his jailers, he had no reason to fear anybody. And in the Wild West of Billy's day, even the most wanted man in America has an easy way to evade the law. Very rarely were, was anybody pursued by local authorities beyond the county, and especially not beyond the state lines, territorial lines. 
most western uh, counties couldn't afford much more than a county sheriff and a few deputies and that was it if billy had crossed the border into mexico he would have been a free man but he stays in lincoln county some say because of his girlfriend paulita maxwell july 14th 1881 Billy visits Paulita under cover of night. Two men are on the front porch. Billy doesn't recognize them. He senses something is wrong and looks for Paulita. What Billy doesn't know is that Pat Garrett is sitting in the next room. Invited here by Paulita's brother, who suspects that Billy's been hanging around. Garrett has been looking for Billy for two and a half months. In Spanish, Billy asks. Who is it? Who is it? Wild West happens completely by chance. Hollywood couldn't have created a more fascinating, talented, wild figure than Billy the Kid. Maybe that's why, of all the Old West outlaws, Billy the Kid continues to resonate today, more than a hundred years after his death. The story of Billy the Kid has worked so well in American popular culture because it meets so many of our expectations. It, it's about who we want to be. It's about what we think we would do. We think of Billy the Kid as helping to shape the myth of the Wild West. But in reality, the West shaped him. This harsh and lawless place forged a legend. The true story of Billy the Kid reveals much about his time and about the character of the real cowboys. Now, there's been many tales written about Billy the Kid that wildly exaggerate his exploits. But he did not kill 21 men by the time he was 21 when he himself was killed. He wasn't like Jesse James. He didn't make, you know, money uh, as, a, uh, as a gangster or as a hired killer. He simply was a consistent rebel. And it's that sense of defiance that made the cowboy an American legend, and that's why Billy the Kid, who is, of all of our outlaws, the most cowboy of them, that's why Billy... All right, everybody, there you go. We don't got no Billy the Kids around anymore, let me tell you that. But anyway, just to sum that up, uh, Billy the Kid, uh, uh, somebody did come forward years later. There was an old man who claimed to be Billy the Kid. Um... Let me see. He's, uh, the old man who claimed to be Billy the Kid. He was in Hicko, Texas. Um, his name was Brushy Bill Roberts. Um, let me see here. It was, uh, let's see, what was his, uh, let's see, um, uh, history tells us the outlaw known as Billy the Kid, Henry McCarty, a.k.a. William H. Bonney, was gunned down at the ripe old age of 21 by Sheriff Pat Garrett on July 14, 1881, in Fort Sumner, uh, New Mexico. He was buried, it is said, in Fort Sumner Cemetery with his associates Tom 
Tom uh, O'Ford and Charlie Boward, Boward and um, Pat, and uh, someone wrote on the uh, thing Pals, wrote on the headstone Pals afterwards. Though none of them are likely directly under the tombstone there today. He since been romanticized, blah, 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 blah. However, as a side back then, people were tough, strong, and fearless. Uh, and it goes on, Billy the Kid, autobiography. And then it goes on, this guy here comes forward. Uh, well, um, it says here, um, uh, let's see here. One of the stories, Billy the Kid, I can't get to get to the year. I can't remember what year it was, but he does come forward. In 1948, there it is, 1948, a paralegal named William uh, W. Uh, William V. Morrison was investigating a man named Joe Hines, a survivor of the Lincoln County War, which is true. They tracked it down. He was around back then. And uh, it's documented he lived there in Lincoln County. The feud that helped make Billy the Kid's name, Hines told him a whopper of a tale. Billy the Kid had not been killed in New Mexico, but was alive and well and living in a town called Hicko in Hamilton County, Texas as one uh, uh, one ollie brushy Bill Roberts, Morrison, approached by Roberts, who, perhaps sensing the end of his life, was near. If he had been Billy, he had been uh, 90 at the time. Made a confession, he had hoped that uh, Morrison could help him claim the pardon that New Mexico Governor uh, Lou Wallace supposedly promised Billy the Kid back in 1879. Brushy Bill was very well known around these parts, says uh, Jane Klein, historian at the Billy the Kid Museum. He would tell tell people around here, you know, I have a secret. One of these days, you're gonna you're gonna find out what it is. He didn't want to tell his story at first. After he thought about it, though, he told Morrison that he was Billy the Kid. All he wanted to do was to get the, that pardon that he'd been promised. In November 1950, Morrison filed a petition on behalf of Brushy Bill, but it wasn't to be. Roberts died a month later, and neither Billy the kid, nor Brushy Bill Roberts, ever received a pardon. Since that time, debates have raged over Brush, Roberts' claim, and whether he was truly one of the West's, West's most notorious gunmen, or just an old man looking for attention. In researching his book, Edward analyzed photographs of Billy the Kid and Roberts, and dug into the details of Roberts' account of his life, and compared them with known facts about Billy the Kid. Before I made the discoveries I made in my book, I did not have an opinion on Brushy Bill, says Edwards. I now believe without a doubt that Billy the Kid was not Bill, was not killed by Pat Garrett in Fort Sumner. I believe he lived, had many more adventures before he finally died in Hicko in 1950. So this lawyer, I guess, believed that that was really Billy the Kid after doing research. He didn't believe him at first, but then he, I guess he did. So it makes sense. So Pat Garrett probably he knew Billy the Kid. He, he didn't shoot him. Uh, make, I just don't understand how they would have pulled that off, though. I mean, uh, they bury him and everything. Who knows? I don't know. You know, he was he was sitting there talking to the Mexican guy, the father, the brother, or whatever. Who knows? Maybe he concocted it and said, "Hey, they'll run off and get married." Blah blah blah. Who knows? And maybe the girl was pregnant. You know? Who knows? You don't know the stories, but uh, you know. But he says this lawyer, you know, states his credibility on it, and and this guy comes forward and all his stories checked out. I guess people knew him all those years, so you know, hey. Maybe he was Billy the Kid, who knows? But maybe he lived, after all, after all those years. Wouldn't that be something, huh? Wouldn't that be something? Does anybody want to uh, comment here on tonight's uh, podcast, or do they want to talk about anything else? That's fine. we still got some time here. I just figured I'd do something a little bit different like I do. I do my documentaries. Uh, if you missed the first, first documentary, it was about the Savage Indians. 
the Indians, the true story of the Indians and how the Comanches would kidnap white people, even white children, and kidnap them and uh, torture them and uh, uh, the, the savagery that they would commit. This is the true story of the Apaches and the Comanches. Um, uh, you can say yeah, I'm lying or whatever, whatever, I don't care. Bottom line is there's documented evidence, true stories, um, autobiographies written. There's people who have testimony. There's mothers that have had their children kidnapped. They filed reports back then. So children, so the savage Indians would do that. They'd come and they would and they'd venture off and they would uh, kidnap people and and, uh, and they would kidnap uh, from other tribes too. The, the Apaches would always uh, be doing battle with the Comanches. The Apaches would do a battle with the Pawnees. So, you know, so they, and they would kidnap children of the Pawnees and, and torture them and everything. These were savages. The, the detailed tortures that they would do and how they would torture men and women are just savages. Savages. I mean, what kind of, I mean, it just goes to show you how stupid some of them were. They thought a, a silver watch, I mean, a clock was, was a god. <laughs> what idiots. They thought a watch was a god because it rang. It went bing, 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 and wind-up watch. So they're complete idiots, you know? So, um, oh, I see my buddy there is in the chat room. That's good white victimhood. Well, I'm just speaking facts. That's all. If you got any, can you present me with any facts that, 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 that dispute what I'm saying is true? Can you present me with any facts? No, you can't. You can't. I mean, am I saying that were Indians not victims? Yes, there were Indians that were victims, yes. Were there blacks that were victims uh, during those days? Yes. But, but today, in the year 2023, here in America, there are victims all across the board. Many whites are attacked by roving bands of gangs of blacks. Yes, happens all the time. And, and are there blacks singled out by whites? Um, I've, I'll tell you what, I've, I don't see it anymore. I think it happens sometimes. I mean, like it happened down there in Jasper, Texas, uh, back about, what, 20 years ago. They took a black guy and they tied him to a truck and drug him. Yeah, they got caught and they got put the death penalty for it. So, you know, they committed a crime. You know, uh, I didn't, I, you, don't, you didn't even give me a chance, he says. Well, it, well, we didn't give you a chance. You can call in right now, 657-383-0616, press 1. I don't got a problem with you calling in. I, you know, I've got plenty of time here. Um, first caller here. Uh, let's see. This is a private caller. I don't know if this is Sarge or Mr. Norlands. Go ahead, caller. You know, uh, you know, whatever this subject of, uh, you know, uh, atrocities that Native American tribes may or may not have committed all comes up, uh, it doesn't seem as if there is an attempt to discover what the truth of it was. It seems that there's an agenda simply to determine, well, the Indians weren't as bad as the whites or whatever. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not, a, it's not an attempt to determine objectively what the historical facts reveal, what Native tribes said about each other, what oh, yeah. contemporaneous accounts of the time. No, it's about, everybody's got an agenda. You know, yeah, yeah, I know. There's no, no agenda. I'm just speaking the facts of what happened during that time. Absolutely <laughs> noble, and they lived in a utopia until yeah, the Europeans know, right? came along. <laughs> yeah, and, and the truth is really a mixture of all of it, as it usually is. But you know, we get you know people get bound up in these narratives, and they just can't tell the truth. Now, this is a fact of of, of history that a lot of people need to be aware of. The Comanche prevented the Mexicans 
and the Spanish in, that were in Mexico after they colonized Mexico from moving into Texas. Okay, that's true. They were so yep. fierce, and they didn't have the wherewithal to stop their plundering and everything else and their murderous rampages. That guess what? They invited those crazy Anglo Texicans to come there and settle because they're the only yep. ones who seem to have the stomach to take on the Comanches. That's right. And, they, and that, in fact, their savagery and their raiding and their plundering literally oh, changed history. Yeah. yeah, they were professional now, raiders. I mean, they were good at it. White people do it. <laughs> Indians do it. And African native tribes did it to other native tribes. This is what men well, we, do. Yeah. Men plunder think, each other when they get the chance. But yeah. we like, a lot of us like to pretend that Indians, oh, no, they were, no, they were just uniformly... Uh, yep. You know, now, sorry, you got your buddy here in New Orleans. He, I, think he's, I, think, I think he's calling in here, so we, he said we don't give him a chance, so let's give him a chance here. Go ahead there, uh, yeah, uh, New Orleans. I'd Go like ahead. to get, uh, have him give us some historical facts. Yeah, I want some historical facts. Yeah, you, you, you guys remind me of the Nazis in Ukraine who are making Stefan Bandera some sort of hero, that person who participated in the uh, extermination of Jews in Poland uh, <laughs> and, and uh, How Ukraine. Is that? You, How? All are, you are apologists for a behavior that was based on the belief that anybody that was not white was inferior, that blacks, that natives were savages, and therefore they had no right to be treated like humans. If you read Bishop uh, Bartolome de las Casas, uh, a priest who documented very well the atrocities of native peoples at the hands of European peoples. If you read the works of Bernal Diaz, he tells you exactly the type of things that were done. And so this revisionist history is no different than the Nazis uh, that is I don't, I'm not, okay, now let me, right now. Well, let me, let me, let me re, 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 agree with you here. I agree with you. Well, you notice what he just did, did there, happen. don't you, Joe? You see what he just did? Yeah. I knew it. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's like, it's like, it, it, it's not like we deny atrocities that are on a historical record and that we, that he can point to, like, say, wounded knee or something like that. We're not going <laughs> to deny them. He, on yeah. the other hand, will deny any historical evidence that we can give to show that the Indians could be every bit as bloodthirsty as savage as any white settlers, if not more so. That's Indians, right. He just ignores it. Native, we don't ignore people, the evidence he shows us that is backed the, the, up by the historical record. We accept it as being true. He won't. Yeah. No. He never will. He'll change the subject yeah. every time. The native, peoples, the native peoples were responding to an assault that occurred yeah, on yeah. them in their land and their people. Well, you might want to so ask what they were doing enjoying, before the Europeans ever got there. Have you seen the big mighty ignorant of that part of their history? Why don't you ask the Cherokee about the Lakota before Europeans ever showed up? Ask you them. guys are ask you them, guys sir, are doing what is called revisionist you, history. But like I said, you no, hang on, let's ask him this hang on, let's ask him this question. Sorry, hang on. Sorry, let's ask him this question. Are you saying that other the Indians did not attack other tribes? They didn't attack each other? Other Indians, of course, but it was not based on racism that whites like you guys did, where white people got mad. 
Okay? You're, you're defending care, white racism, Sarge. You're defending yeah, white supremacy. You're an apologist. You're an apologist for white supremacy, Sarge. Sarge, I got scalped, but you know what? At least you want to do white I mean, come on, man. Murder is when you were cutting our throats. <laughs> no, no, no. See, what you, what you do is you use those aspects of history to justify white extermination. Uh, no, That's sir, what you're I'm doing. recounting and it so, accurately. And so, and so what you you're doing, you are, distorting, you, you are distorting no, history, Sarge. You are you, you are the are one that's history. the story. All right, sorry. Let, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You sorry, put the spin on this. everything. You like to spin everything politically. Right, let's ask him this then, Sarge. Even so, even if that be true, does it make it right that they were able to murder people savagely? Even blacks today, is it, does it make it right? Does it justify their right to do that? The only thing that matters is if there's racism. We're talking about even blacks today. We're talking about even blacks today. What he terms to be racism. Everything else is irrelevant. Yeah, I want to answer that question, though, Sarge. Does that justify? Is is it okay? Does that excuse crying today, though? It never does. But human crime is a shows up for a lynching, and when there's no okay, rope, he runs out, he runs out the whole depot to get the rope. Uh, all right, all right. Let's not attack each other, all right? Okay, just go no, ahead, but, sir, but, but, but Mr. But what Norland. I'm saying was, what, what he At really least when I, you know, when I break in on you, I'm dealing with the topic we're speaking about, not about your wretched personality. Please put, okay, please but, put Sarge on mute, please. Please put him on mute because he can't control himself. <laughs> I, I, I really don't oh, like mute. come on. But, you, but, stop, but, stop plucking but, your pearls. Yeah, go, ahead, see, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Mr. Norland, go ahead. Just for okay. answer. Murder, no, murder, see, what you, murder, murder. No, what, you, no, what, you, no, what you're doing, uh, sir, is you're justifying and rationalizing white genocide against the Native peoples by pointing out that rival groups did kill each other. But, again, that does not justify the killing of Native peoples by the white man and removing them from their land. It is not the same thing, okay? The, the okay, groups, I'll the agree with you groups, to a point. Oh, let me, let me finish. The rival groups, the rival groups uh, whether they were African groups or whether they were indigenous groups, did not have an ideological view of racism as Europeans, white men had. Do you think, though, do you think, though, and when they did Indian not tribes, use, they yeah, did hang not on, let me ask you another question. They did, not use, they did not use the Christian Bible but, to say because the person was not Christian, they're savages, and therefore they deserve to be conquered, enslaved, and killed. Wait a second so now. Wait because, a second now. Hold on, hold on, wait a minute. Because, because the evidence shows that that's what did happen, you're trying to create a justification for that. 
That's wrong. That is wrong. No, when Daniel Boone, if okay. you read like the stories of Daniel Boone, or for, for instance, well, wait a minute, you want me to accusation against me? I'd like to respond directly to it. If All you right, go ahead. Wrong. Go ahead, there, Sarge. You respond. Go ahead. Sarge. All right. He just said that I'm trying to just not substantially disagree with much of what he said. I disagree with some of it, but the statement he just made, the previous statement, that it doesn't justify atrocities against Indians just because the Indians committed atrocities. I agree with that, but he couldn't leave it at that. He had to attribute to me disingenuousness. This is what he regularly does, and this is what frequently weakens your arguments. You, Sarge, you are part of an ideological political perspective called white nationalism. You, you, you believe in white nationalism, Sarge. That's what you perpetuate. He can't help us. He just can't. He can't do it. He's out of argument, so he's back on me again. Like I'm the yes, issue. Even if the charge does believe that, though, well, even if well, he does, well, he's well, entitled understand. to that belief. I could, I could understand. I could understand the white guy saying what he's saying. Because Here we go again. You see what I mean? He can't leave me alone. He's obsessed with me. <laughs> I live rent free in his ass. Why can't Sarge believe with the way he chooses to believe? Why does he have to believe? I live rent free in his ass. He can't get over the fact that I pressed him in the face. He can't answer that question, please. The only way he can deal with it is to attack me. Can I answer the question? Can I answer the question? Because no, if you so we understand fingers, what you're doing. You do it all the time. I deal with the subject. You deal with me. Because but even though, snap, even though, even though, Sarge, why can't Sarge just have his answer and believe the way he so chooses? And you can formulate your opinion on that. That's fine, but it's not because, a fact because I don't think because Sarge believes that way. If you, if you, if you get into a time machine and go back at that time, Sarge would not be doing with the white guy. He would be a victim of the white guy. He would be a victim of the white guy. He's able to argue an issue. He has to argue person. He is a classic Saul Alinskyite. Yeah. There's well, lots anyways. of there's lots of but there's lots of black blacks out there today, or even Latinos that, that think the same way Sarge does. I've had him on this show. So what's wrong with that? Because, Why do they have to be attacked? Because. They are well. We're anybody that and also was being nice anybody, anybody, universal brutality of human beings. He doesn't want to There's victims and there's oppressors, and there's an intersectionality scale to which we all must adhere. And this guy, by saying what he says and by trying to marginalize me, what he's doing is deflecting away from that very important understanding. You're not fooling anybody, Brother Warren. We know what you're trying to do. Let's let him do it. Let's let him do it. Let him finish off the hook. He almost just did there. And we're going into overtime. Anybody who gets disconnected, anybody who, anyway, we're going to be going into overtime. So if you hang up, you'll be able to get back in. Okay. So go ahead. Go ahead. Sarge is an apologist for the Ku Klux Klan. He's a revisionist. No, he can't help himself, can he? I don't no, think he is, but even if but, but, but even if he was, even if if he was, if he was, so what? That's his that's his choice, right? And that you're would be correct, his choice. But and you're and you're correct, but he should he should be challenged on it as well. No, you're not challenging me on what I believe. You're challenging me. You're not doing that. That's the point. We're not talking about whether or not 
uh, atrocities and murder are a universal human condition. You're trying to tell me that whites had a peculiar aspect to it called racism that invalidates all the other atrocities. And that ain't so. And you'd be better off making your argument if you stop worrying about me, my personality, my personal beliefs, and instead look at what I say. I look at what you say, and I dissect it piece by piece. I got 314. 314 wants to get in here. 314. Go ahead. 314. Go ahead. 314. Go ahead. How you doing, Joseph? Sorry. Hey, there he is. I'm glad you got in before right the leak fell there. Hey, Fionn, get ready to take up my clock, man. I know you do a good job. I, I hang on, hang on. You. Yeah, but hang on, Piaki. We got a, well, uh, I uh, I got I a liberal with, here. I, I agree with what I heard Sauce say. Okay, but we, I guess we got a, no, Mr. New Orleans on here, Pianke, and uh, I guess he, he's with the woke movement. He, uh, he, you know, critical race theory has to be taught in schools, and, and he's, he's what we've been talking about all these months, basically. And, and uh, by the way, I'd like to renew my challenge to him for a debate. Whenever he's ready, I'm here. Yep. But, Pianke, go ahead. Yeah, well, well, like I said, I, I heard Porter was so I said about the Indians. He's absolutely right. Hey, the, the whites didn't do no more than any other ethnic group in another society, another time frame. I mean, that's just the way it was. It's human nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, he disagrees with that. I said Indians were attacking each other during that time. So I played a documentary. They were attacking, scalping each other, and they were kidnapping whites. Don't you think well, what would happen after that? Then whites would get their clan together. They'd go after that tribe of Indians. This was a war. There was a war going on. It happened. It's the way it happened. It is the way it is. What should whites do? Give back the land today? Give them back the 40 acres and a mule? Give them $1.2 oh, million? Dollars? No, matter of fact, no, matter of fact, Indians got the whites to credit for horses so they wouldn't have to walk every place they went, and also guns. Uh, yeah. Indians bought guns from settlers. I said, yeah. That's what it was. They, that's where they got it. They wasn't manufacturing themselves. They had no means to manufacture. All they were doing was bows and arrows. Well, he believes today that, uh, you know, again, he, we've had this many, many discussions of, of what's going on today. Uh, actually, he's been on the past couple few shows. I don't know if you heard him or not, but uh, I'll, I'll let him speak for himself. I mean, uh, it, you know, well, he says history is not being taught the proper way today uh, in schools. Uh, I, I, I just don't know what, what he meant, meant by that. That when You he know made what that kind of history week. needs to be taught in schools? You know, sure. You, American history is what's supposed to be taught in schools. Now you go. go just black history. It's American history, which con- which contains individuals of different ethnic groups at different time periods that contribute to the founding and the building of this country. Now, if you got people out there that want something else taught specifically, well, put it together yourself, have it in your churches, in your community centers, but it shouldn't be had in public schools. Well, well I'd like to say this, sir. Sir, I'd like to say this. Uh, I believe you tuned in to a show I did on yesterday. I ain't tuned that, in to nothing you done. I'm, I did. I'm not I even did. talking I to did. you. I'm not even, I'm not even talking, I'm talking to the host of this yes. show. I'm not even talking yes, to yes, you. Yes, I did. Yes, no, I did. Well, yes. say, sir. Okay, so I want, you, I want you to tune in. I want you to tune in to a show that I'm working on that will be coming up next weekend called Pianchi the Great which was an African king versus Pianchi, the bitches. So I want you to tune in to that on oh, next boy. week. I'll be doing it. Oh, God. <laughs> you look uh, right in his head, 
And Joe, can I say something? I'm like the sure, go ahead. subject rather than go ahead. personality attacks. And the subject is about peacefulness. And since I am actually a historian, even though I'm an amateur one, and I'm a pretty good amateur historian. And I've read up about Indian tribes quite a bit. To give you a contrast, since I'm not as one-side-minded as this guy is, there were tribes like the Apache and the Udam. And the Apache were hunter-gatherer raider people. They ranged throughout the southwest, and with very few exceptions, they were considered enemies by not only their neighboring tribes, but almost everyone who came in contact with them. They plagued the Spanish, Mexican, and American settlers, and they were one of the last tribes who were permanently settled on a reservation. There are many other things I can say about them, too, many admirable things, too, but I'm trying to make this concise. Next, you got the Pima and the uh, Papago people. They were the Udam tribe. They were permanent villagers. They were very good farmers. They harvested from the desert, and occasionally they hunted. They did not raid other tribes. They welcomed the Maricopa people, who were refugees from the Apache. They allowed them to come and settle amongst them. They lived peaceably with European settlers and later if American European settlers. settlers didn't get migrated over there, what would North America look like? They were very today? generous. They were very accommodating with what they harvested from their fields. They shared them with strangers. They hosted and traded with all the 49ers that were going west across California. See, I got a perspective. But let's like start. We man. can't erase this history. Man has we an can't agenda. erase it. He has we an can't agenda, erase history. I'm sorry. It, it, it imprisons him. Yeah, we cannot erase history. We can't change it. So I don't understand what's the all this but, argument what I, about. He completely lacks perspective. I don't. Yeah, I mean, what? Why? Why do we have to thrive for? I mean, what do you? What? What does? Because the, the he's serving argument? an agenda. It's an ideological one. That is, the United States is irredeemably racist, genocidal, and oppressive, and it needs to pony up a lot of cash. Well, Mr. <laughs> Joseph Gibson, Mr. Joseph Gibson, if you. Uh, tune in to my forthcoming show. I'll go into detail when I talk about Piaki the Great, the King, versus Piaki the Bitches. And I'll lay out who the bitches are who try to maintain the name. Wait a minute. Wait Warren Carter, Warren Carter, when are you going to have this show? I don't know who no Warren Carter is. <laughs> Hey, man, you shouldn't be afraid of a date with me. I didn't go to college Warren, for three months. Warren, I got a high school Warren, GED. You ought to be able to best me easily. I'm challenging to a debate. Warren, Again, I'm throwing down the gauntlet, my man. You have fights yourself. Get in the field of battle with me and pull out your sword. Again, Warren, you uh, are half white. Wait a minute, you are half white yourself. I want you to listen to high school GED. I got a high school GED, man. As I analyze, as I analyze, as I contrast the great African King Pianki versus those Pianki the bitches. And I'm going to lay it out. Okay, well, I'm gonna well, lay it well out what's on. your answer today? But, 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 can you just give me a brief answer today? What is it that you want from the United States government or what the white people do in this country today? What is it that you want? What would make you happy? Well, why, why would you pose that kind of question to me? I'm curious about that question. Because, well, uh, well I mean, because you're, you're obviously always speaking. talking it. 
Yeah, I mean, and I don't know. You gotta be careful. You gotta be careful how you use words because you can't be liable for defamation. I, defamation. I would like to. I would like the real white man to speak. All of the other wannabe white men, y'all be quiet and listen. Go ahead, sir. <laughs> well, I'm just saying I don't know whether any other way to pose the question. If you're speaking, speaking for yourself, if you want to speak just for yourself or you want to speak for your friends or you want to speak for your community or your show. No, 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 I don't want to speak you know, for me all the time. Haven't you noticed I, that? I was curious about the nature of the question you posed to me. I, it kind of threw me off. Oh, okay. Well, the nature of the question yeah. is, 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 is why... You speak for everybody in the world if you don't agree with them. Well, hang on, Sarge. Hang on. I, I just want to know what it is that will make you happy to be an American today in this country. What is it that you want or seek or what you feel that should be changed? Well, I, I think that if, if you, you... What I challenge... See, again, all of you all, as we all do in general, have a right to our opinions and perspectives. I think what irks me is when... You all try to distort history and to fashion it in a way to justify the long record of racist treatment against non-white uh, what people. What record of history did I country. distort tonight? Okay, so so well, wait, what record is, of history did example, I distort let's tonight? Example, let's give an example. Let's give an example. Let's give an example. Could, could you put could you put uh, those guys on the mean, he, just, he, just, he just narrates. He doesn't he doesn't provide anything specific. Just narration, endless narration. Well, well, hang on. He's saying that we. we he's saying, too, I, I don't think he was saying you, Sarge. He was saying uh, the white the white community or the government. That's what he was saying. So that you, you know, know what, Joseph? No, no, here's the yeah. point. Anyone, here's the not, point. Not anyone, anyone, not just the government per se. Is what I what I'm seeing here is because the historical record is clear about who has been victimized, there's an attempt to change the narrative because certain people feel embarrassed by the treatment. Okay, okay, okay. Let me, okay. Let me, let me, let me say something on You've never been victimized, though. You haven't, and nobody, and you, nobody you know maybe has been victimized yes, yet, been right? victimized. Let me say something well, on that, Joseph. Well, 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 let, 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 let me say this. Let, 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 me, let me say this. Uh, I have been victimized. I don't. You're you're really not in a position to tell me what I've experienced. Or are, are people? I, I think no, that's, I now, that's where I think that's where you kind of cross the line. Now, when I tell you my stories of victimization, you accuse me just trying to show that yeah, I yeah, knew about I think, the authentic black where, experience. I, I think, now I think, that's what you got. I think that's where you Remember the last time he was on the show, and I told him about the atrocities that were committed against me. He said I was only doing it to deflect away from the fact that I was internalizing white supremacy. Didn't he say that the last didn't time? Say, I, didn't say, I didn't tell you that. Yeah. I didn't tell you that. I didn't tell you that. But, 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 but I'm going to tell you this, Mr. Gibson. I'm going to tell you this. When I do the show called Pianchi the Great versus Pianchi the Bitches, you'll see me uninterrupted going through a deep analysis. Let me say this. You know, Pianchi is a Polish Pianchi is, is, is a Polish name. But, you know, the white man kicked your ass. He kicked your ass. Now, what you going to do about it? You're not going to do shit. I'm going to kick my ass. I'm going to kick your ass. You know what I'm going to do about it? You know what I'm going to do about it? Let me say what I got to say. I'm going to keep my human integrity. I'm going to keep my human integrity. Let me say what I got to say. You're doing what you was complaining Sarge was doing. 
Not only did he kick your ass, but he denigrated your complexion. Now, I ask one more time, what are you going to do about it? Maintain my human dignity unlike you. Okay? You have made a complete fool. You have made a complete fool and clown of yourself. You in charge. members of the racial and industrial complex, and you claim to be maintaining your dignity. You've got to be kidding me. You, you have allowed yourself, both of you, to be sodomized psychologically. If not oh, man, physically. Stop projecting your fantasies onto me. If not physically. You do it if all not the time. Physically. Hey, man, if you want to get sodomized, go see your transgender cocksucking buddies. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> so what I was saying, well, Mr. Gibson, so, so Mr. Gibson, so Mr. Gibson, 